Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Jing Vivian Jan, a professor in the Department of Government and Public Administration at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She did her undergraduate degree at China's elite foreign affairs university in Beijing and got her PhD at UCLA. She specializes in comparative political economy, local governance, and development with a focus on China. We'll be talking today about her first book, China's Contained Resource Curse, How Minerals Shape State-Capital-Labor Relations. Vivian, welcome. Thank you, Peter, for this invitation. It's my great pleasure to be here. Yeah, very exciting for me, too. I'm actually, I don't know if you know this, but I studied at Chinese University of Hong Kong for a year, um, a long time ago, so I'm, I'm kind of an alumnus. Uh-huh. Great to connect in this way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so first, why don't you give background for, for any listeners who, who aren't familiar with this idea or a little hazy, like, and, and it is kind of a hazy idea, actually. So like, what is, what is the resource curse in general? Okay. So basically, in the comparative literature, I mean, in economics, political science, there's this so-called the curse of the natural resources. Basically, uh, research has found that um, rich natural resources like oil, natural gas, or minerals um, are often associated with economic underdevelopment or weak non-democratic political institutions. And oftentimes, countries with rich minerals also suffer high risks of conflicts and civil wars. So there has been a long debate about whether the rich natural resource, resources mean a blessing or a curse to the host countries or regions. Um, yeah, so that's basically this uh, where this idea comes from, the, the curse of natural resources. So my book tries to investigate the so-called resource curse in the Chinese context. Okay, so... Um... Why don't you tell us, uh, yeah, more about like you know what what is the curse and what are some of the mechanics, um, you know, both at the economic and political level that other people have identified in the past. Okay, um, so actually there has been a lot of debate about uh, the existence and the mechanisms of the resource curse. So, like earlier, some economists find that natural resources actually hurt the economy. Okay, so like uh, economists have raised uh, theories like the Dutch theorem, um, arguing that um, the natural resources actually hurt non-resource sectors. Okay, and uh, there's kind of a deindustrialization effect. So that's from the economic perspective. So it's but sort really, of a, so that that story is sort of a crowding out story, like because there's so much money to be made from mining whatever it is, then you end up not, not not developing any other industries. Is that the idea? Right, yeah, that's the basic idea. But of course, there are uh, different mechanisms, like uh, it's about trade, you drive up um, the, the, the value of the currency for a certain country, right? So that um, actually limits the, the country's uh, development prospect in many different aspects. So that's basically the economic story. Um, but later on, political scientists actually added in and they proposed more political mechanisms through which uh, natural resources could hurt a country. 
for example, like there is corruption, right, rent-seeking, and um, oftentimes um, the existence of rich mineral resources would undermine the quality of political institutions. Um, so, of course, there are also a lot of debates regarding these mechanisms. And um, the third perspective, I would say, is from the social perspective, that is about um, the onset um, of civil conflicts and even civil wars, um, because mineral resources would arouse all kinds of um, grievance and the greed could also be one trigger for like contentions among different social groups, right? So that is why a lot of resource-rich developing countries suffer high frequencies of civil wars. Okay, so in a sense, the two, the two, the the two second and third options are kind of they have the shared feature that like basically there's sort of you know literally in some sense a pile of gold or diamonds lying on the table, and so rather than trying to build businesses or build the economy or build a functioning, you know, uh, political system, especially in a less developed country, then everyone just starts fighting over these, these spoils either, or, or trying to get them. So either through corruption, if it's a relatively stable country, then, uh, then it's just corruption. So it's maybe a little bit more like, you know, Russia right now. Um, and then if it's a, um, uh, and then, and then if it's a, a maybe weaker government, then you might actually have like rebel groups, Try, you know, subsisting off of these resources or trying to, you know, take control of the state so that they can run the state-owned petroleum uh, petroleum uh, uh, fields and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you put it very nicely. <laughs> okay, so, um, all right, so that's, that's kind of the big picture um, at a global scale. And obviously there's, uh, you know, lots and lots of research that's been done on this um, in a lot of different countries and with different, you know, viewpoints about how, uh, you know, each of these mechanisms is plausible and probably, you know, exists somewhere, but there's different opinions about how important each of them is overall and which one is at play in, in specific cases. Um, so, so you, you studied this uh, topic in China. So um, before we get into uh, what you found, um, why don't you tell us more about like what you did for your research? Um, you mean the research method or? Yeah, your research method, like uh, what, what's, yeah, what kinds of resources you used to, uh, how did you go about you know, investigating this topic. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, I used a kind of a mixed research method that combine qualitative fieldwork and case studies and statistical analysis. So basically, in the past decade or so, I have visited dozens of mining areas in China, uh, including provinces like Shanxi, Jiangxi, Henan, and Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang, uh, autonomous um, regions. So I have been talking to like more than 100 uh, local officials, mine owners, and the local citizens to try to get information from different perspectives. Um, yeah, actually, I, I collected a lot of interesting stories uh, through my extensive fieldwork. Um, but on the other hand, I also try to generalize what I learned from the from the mining areas by conducting large and statistical analysis. So I collected provincial level data between 1999 to 2017 and um, conducted a regression analysis trying to test the different hypotheses that um, I derived from my fieldwork. 
and of course, I also uh, rely on secondary data sources like media reports, official documents, and um, scholarly publications, etc. Right. Yeah. With a big topic like this, it uh, it makes you know, especially in the context of a book, it absolutely makes sense to you know combine the you know get this, do the statistical analysis where you can, but make sure you you get down there on the ground and talk to real people so that you understand the context from which those statistics are generated and how valid they are and, and what the, you know, what the possible mechanisms might be. I'm always, uh, yeah, I'm always very envious of, of those of you in Hong Kong. Cause like, it's uh, so much easier for you guys to just pop up to China for, you know, a few weeks or a month or something in the summer when you have breaks from, uh, from teaching to, to do a little bit more field work. Uh, whereas it's, you know, much of uh, not, 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 it's not as bad as it used to be from the U well now it is anyway, but even like uh, before COVID, you know, even then it's like, you know, you still have to like fly over and deal with jet lag and all that. And so, uh, I guess it's no surprise you have, uh, certainly at Chinese university, you, you have, uh, uh, several, uh, great social scientists, um, you know, big, big group there. It's such a wonderful launching point to study China. Um, can I ask, uh, how is, uh, how are things in the past two years? I mean, well, I'm curious how your field work went. So before we get into the topic, like how, in general, how did, how did you find, um, you know, access your, your from China originally, and I don't know what your current, you know, citizenship status is, but like, you know, obviously that, that makes things a little bit easier, but like, how did, how did research go when you did go and actually like try to talk to people? And, and did you see that changing over time? Um, yes, uh, indeed. Well, when I, I still remember my very first field work uh, related to this project actually was in 2009, how it was materialized. It was because of because of the university's service center. We all know it, right? So at that time, actually... Um, it actually, so for those people who don't, the university services center is based in... Uh, is it still based in Chinese University of Hong Kong? Well, it, it is, right? It or is. Uh, but it kind now of absorbed it, into something else, right? It, yeah, it's turned into part of our university library now. Right. Anyway, just for people who don't know, that's uh, a center that was based in, it's been based at Univer Chinese University of Hong Kong for years. It's accumulated uh, lots and lots of documents and data and resources um, from mainland China and been kind of a, a launching point and uh, home base for, uh, for many international scholars who are, who are trying to understand uh, contemporary China. Right. So indeed, I benefited uh, hugely from the USC. So basically, back in 2009, actually, USC received a party secretary from one county in Guizhou province. So I got to know him, and he invited me to um, Guizhou province. Um, and that actually was my starting point of the field work. And actually, I also uh, got to know my another um, long-term collaborator of mine. Um, so we actually um, got to do a lot of field work um, in China. So he helped me arrange a lot of interviews um, in different parts of China. So that was how I could expand my network in the mainland and um, got to interview so many um, interesting people. So yeah, in this sense, uh, the USC actually hugely helped me. Um, so that was um, actually up to 2019. We know that in the past two years, uh, because of the pandemic, actually Hong Kong uh, has been closed up, and uh, it's very, it's now very difficult for us to visit 
mainland China without a long time, uh, long time quarantine. So now, yeah, it's a bit um, more difficult to do field work, um, even in Hong Kong. And I suppose it's even more difficult for scholars outside um, China to do it. Right. How how willing uh, when you did uh, talk to local officials? How how willing were they to talk to you? Um, and how open do you feel like they they were about uh, about what was going on? Um, I would say um, the vast majority of them actually were quite open. Uh, well, partly of course, um, I am a Chinese, right? I can speak um, uh, Chinese um, with them, and um, I can actually re- relatively easily understand their accents. Um, you know, accents is something uh, quite challenging for um, outsiders, right? But if you appear to be very understanding to them, and you can even try to speak their their language, so they can be quite uh, welcoming and open to you. Uh, but of course, there are also cases uh where local officials uh, were not that um, willing to talk to you, especially when you talk to people in the police departments, right? Like in the public security um, systems. Um, so that's um, kind of tricky. So you have to find the right way to ask the right questions that would um, intrigue, um, like uh, interest them and uh, make them willing to talk to you. And uh, of course, sometimes it takes some kind of drinking, right? Um, drinking over banquets, um, that's essential. Uh, you have to drink with them to open up their heart. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely a long tradition in uh, in Chinese field work, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Need to uh, get in there and ganbei with the uh, with the cadres, right? Um, but yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, honestly, yeah, it's probably for the purposes of uh, China maintaining, maintaining to the extent that uh, the Chinese government doesn't want everyone to know everything that happens. Um, they probably good that they're having fewer banquets and not having so many cadres drinking with uh, with international researchers. But um, it's been it's been bad for our livers, but uh, but very good for our understanding of like what's really going on in China. Right. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, so you've done a ton of statistical analysis um, along with uh, you know interviews with a variety of actors um, at every level and in several uh, major areas. Um, so um, yeah, so so now give us the big picture about China. I mean, I think most people don't think of China as a resource country. I think at this point, it's you know it's importing a lot, and um, you know what what natural resources does it have, and how how important are they to the Chinese economy overall? Okay, um, good question. So actually, China is a very resource-rich country. Actually, since we were young, we were all educated that China is so-called that means China has vast land, has a lot of resources. So actually, currently, China hosts more than 200 types of minerals. Okay, um, and um, of course, um, the vast majority is coal. Okay, um, and um, some other types of solid minerals. So almost all of Chinese provinces are actively exploring and producing minerals. Um, so the um, percentage of China's mineral production over um, in GDP fluctuated uh, over time. Uh, at the highest point, I think that's around 2010. So the mineral industrial output took nearly 8% um, of the total GDP. 
Um, that's at the national level. But if we look at the provincial level, some provinces like uh, Qinghai, like um, Xinjiang or um, Shanxi, they, their mineral industrial outputs constantly accounted for about 20 to 30 percent of the local economy. So for these provinces, actually, mineral resources mean, mean a lot for the local economy and the fiscal income. So at the national level, we don't have it, it's nothing like you know uh, uh, Norway or Russia, where like or Venezuela, where like oil wealth is is everything. But you're saying when you when you uh, narrow down to some specific provinces uh, or, or regions of those provinces, then then minerals become a huge part of the economy. Right. I guess it seems like so the the places you mentioned most of them are are sort of uh, more sparsely populated and less developed. As well, right? So is that is that also part of why you know there's less you know it's not like Shanghai. Like if you if you discover if you discovered gold in Shanghai, it probably still wouldn't be a big part of the economy because there's so much else going on. But if you discover gold in in Qinghai or, or Xinjiang out out west, then it kind of I mean, well, it wasn't mainly gold, but you know, coal or whatever. Then it's it becomes a big part of the economy kind of immediately. Is that part of what's um, going on? Right. Um. So basically, the coastal region. Um except Shandong, um, the other coastal areas actually don't host a lot of mineral resources. So, yeah, minerals are widely distributed um, in inland uh, areas. Some are um, actually quite populated, I would say, uh, like Henan province uh, is also quite a huge um, Mm, province with a lot of population, right? It also hosts a lot of um, mineral resources, but of course, uh, like... um, in the Mongolia or Xinjiang, which is uh, less populated, yeah, they they are actually mineral rich. Okay, um, so so you mentioned it sounds like coal is kind of the the main one that that really um, is is the dominant part of the economy in some of the areas you looked at. Yeah, actually, coal is um, present in all of Chinese provinces. Um, but of course, uh, there's very uh, various uh, varying degree of reliance on it, uh, like uh, Shanxi province, Shanxi province, and the Inner Mongolia, these are the major producers of coal. Yes. Okay. Um, okay, so so how is it produced in China? How does, uh, you know, obviously China's, you know, in a transition from, uh, you know, old style socialism to to whatever it is um, now, but you know, so it's not, it's not all, uh, it's not just central government mining activities. So, so what's the relationship between, you know, who, who owns the minerals, who owns the mines? How does that all work? Right. So there's um, considerable change over the past several decades. We know that during the most years, all the minerals were state controlled, right? Um, so later in the 1980s, the Chinese government opened up the mineral uh, market and allowed private or say uh, non-state-owned um, investors to come into the resource sector. Um, but still, it took quite um, a long time for uh, private owners to uh, gain their share uh, in the market. So I think it's um, since the late 1990s that we see more and more uh, private owners um, in the mining business. But uh, later into the mid-2000s, the Chinese government actually 
started to consolidate and merge the smaller mines into larger ones, and that actually allowed state-owned companies to take increasing share. So nowadays, we actually see quite a mixed picture. Um, depending on different types of minerals, we see different um, ownership structures. So, for example, if we look at the oil and the gas industry, uh, it's largely state-owned. But the coal industry, uh, we see more non-state um, ownership. But um, for other types of minerals, we really have to look at, uh, into the details um, to distinguish different types of minerals. How about in the rare earth sector? I know that wasn't really a focus of your your book, but that's uh, you know attracted a lot of international attention for sort of geostrategic reasons. Do you, right, um, right. Uh, who rare tends earth, to run that? Yeah, rare earth is a very tricky um, story. Uh, so I think in the past. Um, I guess in the 20th century, um, the local exploration is quite chaotic. So that um, allowed opportunities for all kinds of um, investors to come into the business. But later on, uh, I think the Chinese government tried to tighten the control over the industry and um, made it largely state-owned. But still, even among the state-owned um, enterprises, there there is still a lot of competition and contention. So... I think uh, for a long time, the Chinese central government tried to uh, centralize the locally owned uh, rare earth uh, mines, and there's quite some power struggle in it. But eventually, I think um, the center succeeded. And now I think uh, it's the, some large state, um, cent- central state-owned companies that control large part of the rare earth um, reserves. Okay, and so how do they how do they get the like like let's just take the example of, let's focus on on coal. So if it, is it like some uh, private company uh, thinks there might be coal in some area or learns about deposits, and then does it uh, purchase the land or it purchases mining rights, and and does it purchase those from the local government, like the local government, the province, or the central government? Like who who is it actually? paying for that or who's have to work with in the government to, to get access to build, start its mine? Right. That's a very important question. So the um, investors, they have to um, get the uh, mining permit from the local government. So theoretically, I think it's the provincial government um, that controls the allocation of the mining rights. But in practice, uh, the, the provincial government may delegate the, 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 the power to uh, local authorities. So, yeah, I think there's um, a, a lot of variation uh, across provinces and also over time. Okay. Um, and then, but then they get those rights and then they, they run their mine and make money and, uh, and kind of sell, sell their, their coal on the free market. Uh, well, actually, the coal market is not exactly free. Uh, there's oh, yeah. still okay. a lot of uh, state control uh, in various aspects, like transportation, like pricing, um, like depending on different types of coal. Um, actually, there are different levels of price. So still, the, there's actually a heavy state intervention in the whole process. But plenty of money to be made. Yes, indeed. Um, so like in the high, um, high time of the mineral market, my coal mine owners can easily become millionaires as long as you get a mine and you can just uh, lie down and get rich. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a great investment. Um, so, right. So now let's get into the, the theoretical framework of your book. So you, you, um, you identify uh, sort of three three groupings, which are in the in the title of your book. You know, the state, capital, and labor. I think traditionally, you know, people coming from maybe more of a Marxist perspective or a old even old school economics perspective might just think about well, it's, you know, what happens to capital and what happens to labor. But um, you know, I think you correctly you know identify in, in China. There's always an active state actor, and actually, usually several. There's local government. There's the you know provincial and central governments. Um, all kind of getting get involved directly. Um, so, so the mining, so mining boom, not surprisingly, is good for capital because capital only needs to go places where it can make money. Um, but uh, what are what are the impacts on um, on, on ordinary citizens uh, in in these regions that, that have have a mining boom? Right. So, well, I characterize the resource sector as pro capital and anti labor. Um, mm-hmm. mainly because I have seen so many horror stories for the local citizens and also the mine workers. So I would argue that um, the resource boom actually hurts the labor, uh, which actually I quite broadly defined as the local citizens, not only those people who work in the mining industry, but also citizens living around the mining areas. Um, so I would argue that um, Actually, for local citizens, they suffer from the negative externalities of the mining industries, including um, environmental um, damages, a lot of disputes, like economic disputes, land disputes, all kinds of disputes with the mining businesses. And uh, there's also public insecurity, like there's um, oftentimes violence, social uh, disorder in the mining areas. So in general, I would say the local citizens, they suffer hugely from the active externalities. Okay, so there, um, let's break down some of that a little bit more to make it more concrete. So you're saying they, um, in the local areas, uh, well, what's what's the violence? Like who's who's fighting? I mean, if if I come in and build a coal mine, how does that, how does that cause instability? Are there like miners coming in from out of town who, I don't know, get in fights with people or what, what happens? Okay. So good question. Um, so especially back in the 1990s when the, um, resource market was not very well regulated. So mining rights often were distributed through violence, uh, like the gangsters, whoever got the power to control the mine, they got the mining rights. So there was a, actually quite a lot of contentions, um, over mine control, um, and um, for example, if you control that, yeah, whoever um, has the power to control the mine, they got the mining rights, right? They get rich, right? Right. So, well, I guess I'm, I'm just curious. Like, I could imagine that would create incentives to, like, you know, let's say I'm in some county and there's a potential mine in that county, then I'd certainly want to, you know, bribe the the county leader if I could, so that I would get the mining rights. But but how would how would things get so out of control that like, I mean, would there be like fights that between different, I don't know, if I don't, if the, if the local government doesn't give me mining rights, then can I, are people attacking the local government or are they, how's that working? Okay. Um, so let me give you a concrete example. I think it's back in 1994, there was a major clash between two um, groups. Both are investors who want to control the local gold mines. 
Okay, um, so they were like gangsters. Okay, they had um, armed um, clashes, and that actually led to dozens of casualties, and um, a lot of people died during that clash. So that was a typical example of resource aroused conflicts. Um, so this kind of conflicts so, actually so were would, quite. Would, I guess. So where would the government be in this? Is it that the were there like different like counties on the side of different groups, or or they just were unable to exert authority? I guess uh, the local state uh, capacity was quite weak. I would say. Uh, so basically, um, this happens in areas where there is very weak rule of law, and the local police um, is often captured by the resource um, capital. I would say there's a lot of collusion between the police officers and the gangsters who want to control the mines. So, yeah, so in face of such um, clashes, it, it often depends on which side uh, gets more support from the local authorities, right? Um, so oftentimes, um, in mining areas, we tend to see a lot of mafia-like groups. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're kind of so yeah, so this kind of free or easy money attracts attracts gangsters and thugs, and they they just kind of link up with local government and uh, and then but then sometimes get in fights among themselves um, over it. Uh, and then you said the other the other negative impact. So I imagine there's all you know the usual you know uh, pollution and environmental externalities from from sloppy mining. Um, what about uh, what about just jobs though? I mean, it seems like if uh, if people can, you know, people don't have to work in the mines, right? If a mine opens up and offers a job, I mean, to, to just to take the hardcore free market point of view, right? Isn't, aren't they better off than whatever else they were doing on the farm before that? Yeah, good question. Um, actually, if we look at the employment number, the mining industry doesn't employ a lot of people because essentially it's quite um, capital intensive. Um, especially with the increasing level of mechanization, uh, fewer and fewer people are needed in the mines. Um, so basically, the mining industries, they, they just don't hire a lot of people. Um, and also, the mining jobs, they are not that well paid, especially considering the dangerous working conditions. Um, actually, I have statistics in the book showing the level, the wage level um, in the mining industry uh, compared with some other in, uh, industrial sectors. So, yeah, mining jobs, generally, they are not well paid and they don't hire a lot of people. So for the local citizens, the the booming mining businesses don't help them that much, I would say, in terms of job opportunities. Okay. And there's no, like, economic, no, not a lot of positive economic spillovers, like, just, uh, you know, even if it's just the local bosses getting rich, they're not like, I don't know. I'm just thinking about like, you know, the, the, uh, the California gold rush, you know, I'm in California and, you know, the story there is that the miners never got rich because they would work very long hours just to get, you know, a tiny bit of gold. And then, uh, but then the people who ran the businesses that served the miners and the rest of the economy kind of boomed because there were so many people there and so much economic activity. It just, so even if you, it was better not to be a miner than to be a miner, but there's no, uh, you don't see any evidence of that in your statistics that there's kind of a spillover uh, boom. Well, actually, there is some kind of spillover effect. Um, 
So the, the mining um, industries themselves do not hire a lot of people, but they do need uh, to hire people for other related businesses like uh, environmental uh, restoration, right? So that's actually an area where the local governments uh, and the local citizens, they bargain with the mining businesses trying to get more jobs for the local citizens. Okay. Um, yeah, so tell me more about... Um... Yeah, so, so they don't get many jobs. They do have some some negative environmental spillovers. Maybe they can, so it sounds like they can negotiate or if they have a local government that is more, more activist on their side, it can negotiate for them uh, kind of um, benefits from the, from the companies um, to try to extract some of that uh, surplus. Um, what else, uh, how else do the, does resource, these resource booms affect governance or affect, um, you know, what, what the government can do for citizens? Yeah, um, so, the, um, so the state, actually, I argue, actually plays a very important role in the whole picture. Um, it really depends on what the state um, does um, to try to strike a balance between the conflicting interests um, between the capital, um, capital and the labor. So um, actually, in my research, I identify a, a, a two-pronged story um, regarding the state. So I actually find that on the one hand, there is a, um, this is a kind of a collusive or we could also, in a more um, positive way, say a symbiotic relationship between state and the capital. So the local governments, they do need resources to promote local economic development, right? So there's a lot of incentive for local officials to collaborate with the mining businesses to promote um, economic and fiscal growth. But um, on the other hand, the state is also very wary of the negative consequences um, on social stability, because we know that there's a lot of popular um, grievances and um, contentions between the mining businesses and the local people. So the state actually needs to do something to pacify the, the, the local people. So that logic actually affects the local government's public goods provision. Um, so in this regard, I actually find a two-pronged story as well. Um, that is, on the one hand, the local government, um, the local governments in mining areas, they have relatively weak incentive to invest in uh, human development because the mining businesses, they do not need, need that much labor, right? So the local governments, they tend to underinvest in public expenditures like education and health care. Um, but on the other hand, the local governments, they, because of the frequent mining conflicts, they need to use redistributive policies to pacify the local people and to decrease the social unrest. So um, they are actually motivated to spend more on social security as a kind of safety net um, to pacify and to appease the aggrieved local citizens who suffered. So what kind of social security um, payments are there? Uh, like social assistance, uh, like uh, low-income um, assistance for pensions um, for those vulnerable social groups. Mm-hmm. 
So, so rather than, uh, so if they have like, uh, let's say a million dollars of extra tax revenue they can spend, you're saying rather than using that to build better schools or maintain the hospitals or something like that, they will just give it to give it to the most, uh, most, the worst off people, um, as, right. as kind of exactly. so, sort of an so for example, yeah, yeah, we know that mining often involves um, taking away lands from the local citizens, right? So for those uh, land losing peasants, how can they make a living? Where do they live? The local governments actually need to allocate certain revenues to find new um, like apartments for the citizens or giving them subsidies to cover um, their job loss, right? So through these ways, the local governments actually can redistribute the resource revenues to those people who lose from the booming mining industries. Okay, so this has this would have a lot in common with um, what we see like in, in Guangdong province or in the developing coastal regions where there's, I just, just for context for listeners who aren't familiar. So, you know, no one actually owns their land in China. So the local government can always kind of exert an eminent domain and say, well, now, now your farm has been converted to converted to commercial property. And, you know, a source of contention is you convert the convert it to commercial property and let someone build a factory on it. And they then pay the local government, you know, millions of dollars. And then, but you don't give, you know, the person didn't own the land, so you don't give them, you know, you only give them a tiny fraction of that or maybe something based on if we had let you keep farming on this land, this is how much money we think it would have been worth to you. And the fact that we've, you know, rezoned it and made, you know, a lot more money doesn't, you know, doesn't affect you. But then people get a little bit upset about that because they don't feel like it's very fair since they do feel some sort of ownership right. And so it sounds like it's a very similar thing, like someone takes away my, you know, poor little mountainside farm and then builds a coal mine on it and makes a bunch of money. I get kind of upset about that. And then they pay me off a little bit. Right. Yeah. The logic is very similar. So it's all kind of negotiated. There's not, there's no like, are there any national regulations around that or are there, there are, but they're just kind of ignored or, or how does that work? Well, I don't think there are very detailed national level policies on it's um, it's dedicated to the local levels for each province to, to figure out their own policies. And of course, uh, the provincial government would allow the uh, localities to figure out their own way of dealing uh, with such problems. Mm -hmm. So um, is the central government uh, trying to, to does, does it seem to view this as a problem or like, uh, you know, how much does this kind of resource curse um, infect the, the central government? Um, I think the central government certainly uh, is aware of many problems uh, existing in the mining areas. So, for example, like the 1994 um, clash over the gold mines in Sichuan, it actually prompted the Chinese central government to revise its mineral resources law in 1996, I think. Mm -hmm. So you can see the central level actually was responding to the local happenings, right? And um, later on, uh, like in 2005, um, the Chinese central government required the local uh, governments to try to con uh, consolidate and merge the smaller mines into larger ones. One major incentive was actually um, um, to decrease the local like mining accidents 
and、um, all kinds of problems associated with the chaotic、uh, exploration of the mineral resources. So from time to time, we can see that the central government、um, was responding to the、uh, local scenarios and trying to come up with policies. But again, the policies. Are still delegated to the local governments for implementation on the ground, right? So it really depends on the local levels' efforts、um, to resolve many problems, and also their capacity matters a lot. And this will also affect China's、uh, ability to,、uh, you know, work、uh, work on climate change and, and carbon, right? If there's all sorts of little coal mines that keep Springing、right. up, I understand they've had some challenges, even trying to, even when they want to reduce dependence on on coal, it's been difficult for this reason. Right, indeed. So when we look at China from outside, we tend to view it as a very strong central state, right? They have the top, so-called top-level design. But actually, in reality, the central government relies a lot on the local efforts to achieve a lot of、uh, its policy goals. So we cannot assume the central will can always be、um, implemented or to to be realized in in practice. Right. So、um, okay. So so zooming out from、uh, the the China context. So what what do you see as the contributions of your book to you know the the understanding of the resource curse? Um, more broadly, like how does it reinforce or or alter how people,、uh, or or even just maybe highlight things that people studying other countries、uh, may not have thought about? Yeah, that's a very important question.、Um, I have been thinking about this.、Um, so I think one major contribution、uh, that my book tries to make is、um, that we need to look at the impacts of the natural resources on. Different social groups. So, like in the past,、um, in the existing studies on the resource curse, people tend to look at the host country or region as one unit,、uh, without distinguishing different stakeholders. So, I want to draw people's attention to the different players: capital, labor, and the state.、Um, so, I I think if we are to discuss. Whether resources is a curse or not, I would say the better question to ask is: To whom is natural resource a curse?、Um, so that's one contribution. And I, the second contribution I think is:、uh, I really highlight the the, the the roles that the state can play.、Um, so I would argue that the state actually can、uh, mitigate many of the negative effects. Of mineral resources on the society,、uh, but of course the state has to have incentive and capacity to do so. So I try to、uh, propose this theoretical framework for future studies on the resource curse. So we have to really look at the triangular relationship between the state, capital, and the labor to really understand what's happening、um, on the ground. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to stop.、Um, so, thank you so much for、um, uh, for joining us today on the podcast.、Um, for, so, for listeners,、um, this is China's Re- contained resource curse by Jing Vivian Jan. It's about how minerals shape state capital、uh, labor relations. Yeah. Thank you.